Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I've been doing lately, boys and girls, is working my way through a mega-series entitled These Seven Men Are Disrupting the Comics Industry. And in case just the title didn't give away at least elements of my subject matter, basically what this mega-series is dedicated to is the initial offerings of Image Comics by each of the, the different co-founders. Well, not each of the, uh, of the co-founders, some of the co-founders. Basically, those co-founders whose first four issues I could find on Comixology, those are the guys I'm going to be talking about in, in this series. So that basically leaves us with three titles, doesn't it? Because Comixology is woefully incomplete, at least on some things. So I don't know what to tell you there. But anyway, I've been having the time of my life working my way through all these old issues because it really has been a long time since I've read some of this stuff. And I'm one of those people that like a lot of Batman comics, I may not necessarily retain everything, but I, yeah, I, I guess, I guess maybe you could say I retain the, I guess like the broad strokes uh, of Batman stories that I read, or Superman stories, uh, certain Spider-Man stories. I mean, I'm a little, eh, I'm a little iffier when it comes to that, and a few other things. But honestly, a lot of this image stuff, except maybe for Spawn, it's pretty much been a long time since I've since I've read any of that, and the details of it are a little hazy, put it that way. And so I thought, well, you know, it might be kind of fun, in addition to rereading these comics, for, like specifically for this mega series, waiting until really the last possible minute to reread these comics, the last possible minute before recording, so that my reaction can be maybe a little bit fresher shall we say. So that's the way that I've chosen to do things. And that's, well, I mean, that's the policy, you know, so right or wrong, whether that's the right policy or the wrong policy, that is still the policy. So anyway, so there you go. And as it goes for recent helpings of these seven men are disrupting the comics industry, what I've been talking about most recently is the Savage Dragon, because of all of these different image comics, especially the early offerings, I don't think it would be unfair to say that the dragon is probably the character that I have the overall least recall of. Spawn, like I say, solid recall of that. Wildcats, not quite as good, but it's, it's not terrible. Honestly, just about anything that has anything to do with the dragon it's, like I say, pretty hazy. So, anyway, there you go. So, I guess without further ado, maybe I should just go ahead and, and get into it here. This is the Savage Dragon, number four. And if the damn thing would ever load for me, I could... Okay, here we go. Credits are as follows. Some kind of interesting credits, I must say. Creator, writer, penciler, and inker, Squeaky Larson. Letterer. Squeaky Eliopolis. Colorists, 
Squeaky Olive, Squeaky Rude, Squeaky Cold. Editor, Squeaky Wong. Story synopsis for this well, story, which doesn't also doesn't seem to have a title, but the story synopsis for the Savage Dragon number four, at least the dragon's part of this issue, is as follows. The dragon arrives at the house in DeKalb, Illinois, having been summoned there by the local police. While reviewing the crime scene, the DeKalb police announced that they called in the dragon for help in dealing with a monster of some kind in the house's basement. The dragon makes his way into the basement where he finds a malnourish, uh, malnourished, spike-covered dinosaur-looking girl chained to the wall. Back in Chicago, Dart meets Lieutenant Frank Darling at the hospital for the very first time. Meanwhile, the dinosaur girl is chowing down on fried chicken at the police station when Captain Stewart suggests recruiting said dinosaur girl into the department's super freak task force. The dragon makes it pretty clear that he doesn't like that idea very much, so Stewart plays it all off as a joke. But not really. He's actually kind of, sort of, serious about doing this. Later, the dragon has a sort of awkward encounter with Amanda, a woman whom he rescued and who now thinks that she has feelings for him, but he makes it clear that he's not interested in a relationship with anybody right now. Once that's over, the dragon and Dart get summoned to the underground where some super freaks are said to be duking it out with each other. It turns out to be Barbaric and Ricochet from the first issue, and they're getting the shit pounded out of them by Cesspool. Uh, this really weird-looking dude whose entire body appears to be covered in ruptured blisters or something. Or, depending on how you look at it, perhaps his entire body is covered in assholes. I, I don't whatever, it's pretty nasty, that's the point. It's pretty nasty looking. So, after Cesspool gets taken down by Dart, the dragon recruits Barbaric and Ricochet into the police department's super freak unit. They agree to join, although it seems that they might have ulterior motives. You know, something beyond just helping their fellow man. It could be that they simply want three hots and a cot every day. But that's not the only way to interpret their dialogue. Elsewhere, a bus is headed to Chicago with an old lady aboard who's excited to see her little boy. He's a policeman. To be continued. Although, probably not anytime soon, to be honest with you. So, what did I think? Well, guys, I must say that uh, just to kind of carry on some of the remarks that I made in the episode that I did about the Savage Dragon number three, you could argue that it's been sort of diminishing returns with these Savage Dragon covers since the first issue, and it's just sort of gone down. The, the, the cover for the first issue is fucking amazing. This is one of the great comic book covers of all of the 1990s, at least if you ask me. The cover for issue two... It, I mean, it's good, but it's just not really on the same level as the cover for issue number one, which I hold to be an absolute bona fide fucking classic. I mean, this is just a great cover for issue number one. Like I say, issue number two, it's good, it's competent, it's well done, just doesn't hit quite the same way as perhaps issue number one's cover. Issue number three is worse yet than issue two, and at this point... By the time we get to issue number three, 
the uh, degradation, the decline, some kind of D word, but for some reason I can't think of it, but we'll just say decline. So the decline, it's really starting to get pretty bad, guys, because this, again, this is not a bad cover, or let me rephrase that. It's not a bad piece of art. If you were to do this this cover for issue number three as a splash page or something like that, it actually would work quite well. But as as the cover for this comic, I'm just not really seeing it, you know? Just, it doesn't, there's a certain something that the, that the cover for issue number three was was lacking, and I stand by that. So getting into the cover for issue number four, it's probably fair to ask, what are we in for on this? And honestly, the the momentum on the quality of these covers is actually starting to shift back around. I would actually put the cover for issue number four, I would say that it's, yeah, just about even, I would say, with the cover for issue number two. So not quite on issue number one's level, but not quite on issue number three's level either. So that's good. So saying that it's fairly comparable in terms of quality to issue number two, uh, yeah, sounds about right. So anyway, as to the cover, it consists of the dragon and he's got his fists cock it's pulled back it looks like he's about to punch the camera you know the camera as it were dart is somewhat turning her back on the camera so that we can see her buttocks she's holding a giant fucking gun of doom and her her facial expression is one of don't fuck with me because i'll break you in half man so there's that and then and then there's Barbaric looking large and in charge. He's wearing a Chicago PD uniform with with two bandoliers, it looks like. And for as big as as Dart's giant fucking gun of doom might be, I would actually say that Ballistic's giant fucking gun of doom is just that much bigger. Or sorry, not Ballistic. <laughs> barbaric. <clears throat> Ballistic, barbaric, whatever. Anyway, so Barbaric's giant fucking gun of doom is just... It actually looks like it's even bigger than Dart herself. Not just bigger than her gun, bigger than Dart. Just a big, big fucking gun. So, anyway. This this cover... You know what? It's kind of funny. In a lot of ways, this cover sort of epitomizes everything that some people hate about 90s comics. And everything that, honestly... The more time goes by, the more I love. I just fucking cherish about 90s comics. This is just so good. This is so good. So, anyway, uh, the inside, what I imagine was the inside cover, <clears throat> or Comixology's page two. I got my throat is getting dry. Let me get a sip off of my orange vanilla Coke, guys. Just one second. <clears throat> also going to get some vapor because hey why not right
Okay, great. Now I got the hiccups. Wonderful. <laughs> so, uh, maybe this is going to be the hiccup episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality? I guess we'll see. Anyway, so what I assume was the inside cover on this comic originally, honestly, to, uh, guys, just full disclosure, I've been dig or mostly digital. I said all digital uh, at one point, but I've actually gotten a few new to me paper issues. So I don't know. But whatever. Anyway, point is, it's been forever since I've seen a paper issue of Savage Dragon number four. And so it's actually really hard for me to remember. But I swear to think there was either a first page, but I don't think so. I think it, this was actually the inside cover that listed off the uh, the Image Comics, the other Image Comics logo. The Savage Dragon logo, the the creative team responsible for this issue, so on and so forth, the indicia, all that fun stuff. And I swear to think this was the inside cover, but whatever. The point is, this is Comixology's page two. And all of these creators, they all, it only lists their last name. This uh, the, Their first names, are, it, it's the same for everybody. It's Squeaky, S-Q-U-E-E-K-Y, Squeaky. And I don't really understand what that's all about. I assume there's some kind of inside joke that's going on here. <clears throat> and I don't know. I mean, it's, this is just very odd and very strange, and I, I don't know. So one of the things the cover does do, though, is that it does list off several key characters' names, specifically the Savage Dragon, not just the Dragon, for some reason, but the Savage Dragon, Dart, Cesspool, Barbaric, Ricochet, and Horridus. All of these characters are listed there, and for some reason I felt like mentioning that, because until now I never noticed that before. So make of all this what you will. So getting into Comixology's page three, this is I, this is actually really neat. I One of the things that a lot of 90s comics in general, and I would say image comics in particular, are sort of notorious for, or famous for, or infamous for even, is all of the male characters having these hyper-idealized bodies with, uh, they, they are impossibly tall, they've got, they're impossibly broad-shouldered, they've got impossibly huge muscles and all, and all that stuff. And one of the things that works for me about the Savage Dragon as a comic is that the art sort of goes out of its way to make it clear that even in the fictional world in which the dragon lives, he is exceptional because you can see it right here. Uh, this is uh, page three, panel one. He's got his back to the camera. He's uh, walking into the house like he owns the place with a giant fucking gun of doom and he's got his wife beater on and uh, he, showing off his muscles and how big he is, how tall he is and all that. I mean, he, he looks like he can kick some serious ass. But the thing is, he's surrounded by police officers, men and women alike, who have, one might say, more normal types of proportions. And so the the art is making it pretty clear that these characters... Uh, Barbaric, the Dragon, Dart, Ricochet, 
All these characters, these super freaks, they are exceptional within the context of the fictional world in which they live. But this isn't a comic book where everybody's beautiful. Certain people are, 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 are ripped and chiseled and just real gnarly looking. And others are not. And the deciding factor in all of that appears to be whether or not they're a super freak of some description. So make of all that what you will. Now, another thing that kind of works for me is the dragon, he basically shows no hesitation, no fear, no nothing in dealing with what he thinks in that moment is a monster hiding in the basement or trapped in the basement or whatever. He just, he doesn't even ask for a description of what he's going into. He doesn't try to get intel. Nothing. He just opens the door and in the moment, he's ready to go into the basement and kick some serious ass, guys. And so it comes out, and in pretty short order, I should say, it comes out that no, he's not gonna he's not gonna be facing off in a in a some kind of super battle with a monster. This is actually a rescue that he's performing. And in a certain kind of way, it's actually a good thing that the DeKalb police called him in because if they if they had understood that the dinosaur girl who has not been officially named yet so I'm not going to do it but if they had known that the dinosaur girl was basically defenseless and helpless they might have actually gone in there guns blazing I mean we don't know so in a certain way yeah it's annoying that the dragon got called out there just to do something like this just to carry a girl out of a basement but on the other hand no, maybe this is actually a good thing. He may be saving her life in more ways than one. So, anyway. Now, moving forward a bit, getting into page five. <clears throat> Look, guys, I don't know that this... I don't know this to be true, all right? But... I... Every time I've ever read Savage Dragon number four... <clears throat> I've wondered, you know, all the fill-ins and all that other stuff from, well, not fill-ins, uh, the uh, backup uh, features in issues number two and three, I've wondered if the reason that those backups weren't inserted in there isn't because Larson was seriously under the gun getting his, basically his own publishing company up off the ground, getting his own comic book company up off the ground trying to find talent to fill out his studio and all that fun stuff. And so maybe the reason that some of those backups existed was basically to give Larson a little bit of breathing room. You understand? He wrote these scripts and he intended the, intended the scripts to end at certain points and then realized, I'm not going to be able to get everything done in time in, uh, for, in order for this issue to get shipped to the printers on schedule so that the book can come out as it was announced. So I'm going to have these backup stories just kind of pad out the issue a little bit and work these other pages in later. The reason I'm saying that is because if you look at page, well, Comixology's page five of this issue, this could be, or at least this could function 
as the last page of the third issue. I'm not saying that this is what Larson originally intended these pages to be. I'm just saying it could work that way. The ending for the third issue was so abrupt, whereas this this page ends on kind of a sort of an emotional high that it makes you wonder, was this intended to be the last page of issue three? And I'm not so curious about that, that I wanted to search around online and look for answers to my knowledge, which is saying pretty much nothing, but to my knowledge, Larson has never commented on that one way or the other. So I don't know. So just take all of this with as many grains of salt as you see fit. So anyway, getting into page six, guys, Frank Darling's paranoia is really starting to get to him. His wife got kicked down an escalator at the mall, and she's convinced it was an accident. Could have happened to anybody. Frank is not quite so convinced of that. He thinks, or at least he worries, that that may have been a, a, a an attempt on her life by the bad guys just to kind of put the screws to him, Frank, a little bit. So, who knows? Elsewhere, speaking of kind of scumbags here, actually, I don't know. I don't know. Is Frank a scumbag? I mean, he got caught in... in shitty circumstances. He did something he clearly did not want to do. I mean, he wanted to do it, but he basically, he recruited the dragon into Chicago police and he wanted the dragon to join, but basically Frank himself is now getting held over a barrel by the bad guys. The dragon gets pointed in directions that really aren't all that threatening to the bad guys, while the bad guys get to do whatever the hell they want. And if Frank makes too big a stink about that, the bad guys have made it pretty clear that they're going to, well, air Frank's dirty laundry to the public, which obviously Frank doesn't want. So does that make him a scumbag? I mean, I don't know. But we haven't really seen a whole lot of Captain Stewart in the issues up to this point, but we do get a little bit of business with him here in issue number four. And on page seven, he does kind of come off a little bit scumbaggy. You know, what we're talking about here, this this dinosaur girl, she's a little girl, all right? I mean, yeah, she's obviously hitting puberty somewhat, but you get the idea she's still basically a minor, you know? And so here comes Stuart, wanting to recruit her into the police and put her in all these, you know, possibly dangerous situations and risk her life and, and all that. And obviously the dragon is, he's non-happy about that. He's like the opposite of happy about that. And I just kind of like that. I mean, it, it kind of speaks to the fact that the dragon, at least so far, is pretty incorruptible. And when you think about... Chicago's reputation and what it means to be incorruptible in that that shithole city. I mean, wow, he the dragon really is something special, not just because of his abilities, but now just because of his character. So anyways, one of the things and this is getting into to page eight, one of the things that I sort of like about the Savage Dragon 
or at least the first several issues of The Savage Dragon, is in a certain kind of way, yeah, you can see this comic book as, in, like, in a very broad sense, just a big, dumb, stupid action movie. And it, I think, is very successful in, in, in that sense. You could also see it as Dirty Harry with superpowers. I think it works really well in that sense. But and as much as anything else, it's it's also just kind of a, a generic 80s cop action movie with superpowers, if that makes any sense. Because this is sort of an obligatory scene from a lot of 80s cop action adventure movies where the cop, he's so committed to his work and his career. He knows what how dangerous his life is and he doesn't have time for women. But man, the women sure love him. You know, it's a little bit of an 80s action movie cliche, and we kind of get that here. And that, by the way, is no criticism. No, my good friends. On the contrary, that is a compliment. I like that. That's not a bug. That's a feature, at least in my opinion. And you can see that... I mean, I don't know. It's Like I say, it's been forever since I've read these issues, so I don't actually remember what's coming in the future for Amanda. But at least, just rereading this page right here, right now, the sense I get of this is that Amanda, her feelings for the dragon are not... They're not necessarily from the heart. Does that make sense? She and the dragon, they had this really, for her, a very emotional and experience when he saved her and it's great don't get me wrong it's great that she's alive but she has feelings for him which i don't think are specifically too genuine you know she's not trying to be dishonest with him i think she thinks she's telling him the truth that she really is interested in him and is attracted to him but it's like at the same time Again, I, I could be completely wrong because, I mean, I'm completely blanking on anything that has anything to do with Amanda after this issue. But I get the idea that her feelings for him are sweet in their own way, but they're not really... They're misguided, shall we say. You know, this is the sort of thing that I could see happening to a normal person, and then when a normal person has chance to kind of get their equilibrium back, just kind of catch their breath a little bit and get over whatever experience it was that they went through, they'll be able to see things a bit more clearly. And she, I don't think she can do that right now. And she may never, for all I remember, she may never. But at least for right now, I get the idea that she's not being intentionally dishonest. She's simply mistaken. Maybe that's the best way to say it. So I don't know. Anyway. Now, being as this is the Savage Dragon is in some ways an 80s action cop movie with superpowers, you got to have a lot of fights. And I've said time and again that, yeah, you get a, a little bit of boobage in the Savage Dragon and you get some butt cheeks and all that stuff. But really, the franchise of the Savage Dragon as a comic book and as an ongoing title, it's action, action, action and more action, more and more and more and more. 
And so you got to have lots of explosions, and you got to have lots of fights and lots of gigantic fucking guns of doom, you know, all that fun stuff. You know, you you need that because that's that's really this book's trademark. And so it's, you know, I mean, here it is. We're getting into page 10 now. 10 whole pages of a Savage Dragon comic book and we haven't had any fights yet. So it's definitely time to balance out the ledger on that a little bit. And so we do. Now, the fight that ensues, this, it's impressive for what it is. Because I'm technically, I guess you could say it goes on for one, two, three, four, five, six pages. So that's not an incons- that's not an inconsiderable proportion of this book. That's... That really is something. Six pages on on a fight, you know. That really is something. But it, I, I think that's actually the only real fight that we get in this. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, anyway, so it, what we do get, and this is like I say, it's six pages. So take that, haters. But this is a pretty dynamic and engaging fight. It's basically a four way fight between uh, barbaric. Ricochet, the dragon, and Dart. And they're basically pounding the shit out of Cesspool. And it's... I mentioned in the the episode that I, the, that I did about the Savage Dragon number two. I don't know this to be true, guys. But my suspicion is that it's probably not very easy to draw page after page after page in a comic book of four characters fighting one character. All right? It's... What do I know about art? Okay, what do I know about drawing? Guys, I know dick. I know nothing. I know less than nothing. I'm just saying, I would imagine this is a very hard thing to draw. So whatever misgivings I may have about Eric Larson's line style, I nevertheless recognize the fact that he is talented, even if his line style isn't necessarily always to my taste. I mean, it comes and goes, but it's even if it's not necessarily always to my taste, I do acknowledge the fact, I freely admit, in fact, that he is talented and he is, he does know how to put together a, a, a mean comic book page, I'll, especially when it comes to fights and action and car chases and all that stuff. That, I think, is where he really shines. So he he does that very well, I would say. So anyway... Nearing the end of the issue, uh, Barbaric and Ricochet, they basically go back to the police station, at least for a while, before Ricochet gets mortally offended by Captain Stewart and then storms out the door. And then at the very end, at the, at the bottom of page 16, as Comicsology would have it, we start getting perhaps a little bit of insight into this ongoing uh, subplot regarding... This woman who keeps calling the police station claiming that she's the dragon's mother. And this is the first time that we've set eyes on the person who I assume is calling. And she really does seem like a sweet little old lady. Like, of course, I'm blanking on her name now. But that little old lady from the Looney Tunes cartoons who I think Sylvester was supposed to be her cat, perhaps. Or maybe Tweety was her bird. It's, or maybe both. I don't remember. But anyway, this little old lady, and that's just sort of the the voice that I used, that kind of high-pitched, you know, kind of voice. 
when when I was reading this old woman's dialogue, that's the voice that I had going in in my head, and I guess for the rest of the uh, of the voices in this comic, honestly, not very many of these characters even really have distinctive voices, other than I honestly the only thing I that I could think of for barbaric is Steve Buscemi and or wait is there an h in that guy's name whatever mr pink okay we'll say mr pink so basically every time i see barbaric the the voice that i think of is mr pink and i don't even really completely understand why because barbaric as a character he doesn't really i don't know maybe he kind of looks like mr pink i'm i don't know I don't know. It's I, I can't even completely quantify it. It's just he reminds me of Mr. Pink, something about his face, and even really, I would say some of his dialogue. It just sounds like something that I could picture the actor, Mr. Pink, saying with credibility. You know, he could he, he could give a, a, a good performance with this, I think. So I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I may be completely overthinking this i don't even what am i doing here all right so and that pretty much closes out the dragon's uh participation in this issue now yes there is a backup this one features rapture and ricochet and i don't really have any great desire as i said in the last uh, the last episode about the savage dragon i don't have any great desire to work my way through any of these backups maybe someday I will, but at least for right now, I'm just, I'm really not feeling it, so. So, all things considered, I'd say that's pretty much it for Savage Dragon issue number four, so, yeah. Now, as to feedback, all right, so, I've got an email here. This actually, this one actually looks like it covers a pretty wide variety of topics, to tell you the truth. This was sent in on February the 25th, 2015. By longtime listener and longtime uh, friend of this show, Fanboy MS Prime, subject line says, Big Book of Little Criminals and Smallville, Season 2, Part 3. Prime says, <clears throat> Hey, Magnus. Sorry these have been so infrequent, but been in a Super Robot Wars sort of mood. What is Super Robot Wars, or uh, Super Robot Tyson, some would call it? What happens when you put a boatload of animes onto, uh, onto a blender and slam the button while throwing in some original mecha characters and villains in as well for good measure? That universe might look like the Justice League has a trinity that forms the basis for it. Though in this case, it is Gundam, Getter Robo, and Marzinger. And like the Trinity of the Justice League, some of the later games took out one or more, but they always come back sooner or later in some form. Now, I'm going to put your email on, on pause here, Prime, and say, we're getting into some, uh, at least for my fanboy sensibilities, we're actually getting into some pretty foreign territory here when it comes to anime. I'm... 
and this is no disrespect to anybody really, but I've never really been like a big anime guy. I've seen uh, Ghost in the Shell and thought that was all right. I saw uh, Ninja Scroll. I actually really like that. That's that's really good. I saw a little bit of Ranma One Half, like back in the '90s or something, and <clears throat> I thought that was you know it, it it's pretty funny. It's kind of weird, but it, it's all right. Um, let me think. What else? Uh, Crying Freeman. I remember that, and that was actually all right too. Sort of like John Woo anime um, or something. I don't even know. But anyway, so that, you know, that was all right. But by and large, I just, a, a lot of anime, and I would say pretty much all manga, they pretty much leave me in, they, they just kind of leave me behind. You know, I just, I don't, I don't really get into that stuff. Not super knowledgeable about it or anything. And so, I'm kind of flying blind a little bit on some of what you're talking about here. So just keep that in mind. If I'm mispronouncing anything or getting details wrong or, or just whatever, just forgive me, all right? But anyway, Prime goes on to say, uh, Macross has ended up being a mainstay for the games as well. I won't say Robotech, as the other two animes used to give that show enough episodes for syndication, have not appeared in any of the SRW games. Though the anime used in the Robotech movie has appeared in those games. Yeah, Robotech got a movie using a fourth anime that was basically, what if someone made The Matrix as an anime with Mecha in the 80s? I doubt Matrix is a ripoff of Garland as well. Not sure how widely released, if at all, the Robotech movie was. Plus, it is all Plato's allegory of the cave as a basic idea. Go Lion, aka Lion Voltron, was in an SRW game as well. An anime to this day, I am surprised they managed to alter it to be arable on US TV as holy shit is Go Lion violent. I mean, the bad guys have the losers of gladiator combat for their amusement turned into a stew for their monsters to enjoy. The Galra Empire, aka Planet Doom, also in the show, blew up the Earth, changed it to the home planet of one of the lion pilots in Voltron, but the planet still went boom. Yeah, the bad guys in that series weren't playing games. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like they were. So, <laughs> that's all right. Uh, Prime goes on to write, There's Tekaman Blade, a.k.a. Technoman, as it was called when UPN played it as part of their cartoon block in the 90s. I remember enjoying that one, and there is a six-part OVA series called Tekaman Blade 2 that I've seen some of. Then there are com, uh, Combattler 5, as in the letter... F or, boy, did I, I already fucked that up. Let's try that again. Then there comes Combattler V, as in the letter V, not the Roman numeral for 5, which is one of the classics from the 70s combining giant robot animes, which has a massive yo-yo with spikes as a major weapon of the mech. Wow. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Then there is Volts 5, which is 5, not the letter V, which is the next uh, series in a loose trilogy with Combattler uh, being the first one. The interesting thing on this, uh, uh, on this one is that someone involved was working on an anime set in the French Revolution after this, and the research for that while working on this anime uh, bled into the end with the heroes taking the fight to the evil emperor, who had been invading the earth and social order was breaking down as the common people of the planet hated him as much as the heroes. 
So the regime falls and the emperor, uh, the emperor gets killed while he's trying to get away with a cart full of gold and jewels. An obscure one is Invincible Steel Man Die Tarn. Oh, wow, I did get that right. Die Tarn, because uh, Prime actually included a little pronunciation guide here. Die Tarn. So, yeah. Invincible Steel Man Die Tarn 3, which is basically what happens if you have James Bond and Batman put together, and he has a skyscraper-sized giant robot to pilot. Didn't do well in Japan, but reportedly well in other countries. A sort of spiritual successor to Die Tarn is of... Uh, is, of course, a Big O. A city without memories. Uh, or rather, a, a city without memories... Uh, a city without memories over something that happened, but beyond that, how much is true or not comes into question in the final episode of the show. But yeah, it has elements of Batman and James Bond with a giant robot and a robot girl. Neon Genesis Evangelion almost doesn't need an introduction, given its infamous piece in the pantheon of giant robot shows. And Prime, I'm going to have to put this email back on pause here and say, I beg to differ, because, again, complete anime numbnuts here. So I have no idea what Neon, Gen uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion is, what makes it so infamous, or, or, or just what. So just bear that in mind. So Prime goes on to write, what happens when the writer of the source material is depressed and intends to crush the heroes by working for some fucked up people? However, in the Super Robot Wars games, if you are hot-blooded enough, you survive the end of the world and punch some sense into Shinchai Aikari. I guess is how that's pronounced. With a space station that also doubles as a really huge hammer. Yeah, the SRW games get weird. Really weird. The anime with said massive weapon that would make even Thor blink is Gal Gygar. Prime, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. Gal Gygar. It is of the Brave Meta series, which is basically what you'd call the cousin of the Transformers, as their origins were that the original Transformers line ran out of gas in Japan and the U.S., but the Japanese company involved in making the Transformers still had molds, uh, molds and such available, so they went and got new cartoons made, and so was born the Brave Meta series, <clears throat> as I've mentioned before in emails. Only this series and the Meta series has has been in Super Robot Wars. And Prime, I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, you know, that seems like that lines up with something else I heard. I mean, this was like ages ago, but I I watched Transformers, uh, the movie, like the, the 86 animated version. I watched a few clips of that on YouTube, and I'm sure you, by now you know how YouTube works, where if you watch something, they show you, as recommendations, they show you other things that are kind of similar to that, uh, or perhaps more of that. And so you watch a couple of Transformers the movie clips, and what ends up happening is you get these other recommendations that are uh, about Transformers, or maybe tangentially about, or like semi-connected to Transformers, and there was some video, and I'm I'm blanking on all the details now because Prime. Look, you gotta understand. I mean, this was just a pretty long time ago, like a year or something like that. But uh, I seem to remember that there was some type of video where it basically the YouTuber was talking about. There was it's not an official continuation of the Transformers that happened in Japan, but it's like at the same time. It's using the same basic designs uh, as the Transformers, different names. 
I think, different storyline, different other things as well. But the common starting point for this is Transformers. And so uh, I didn't pay super close attention to it because, again, not real big on anime. And so a lot of that stuff just kind of goes right by me. But I do remember hearing something similar to what you're talking about here. And it makes me wonder if these two are the same thing. So I don't really have a very good answer to that. So, yeah, let's see. Uh, Moving right along here, Prime goes on to say, Not sure how to put Better Man, which it seemed is tied to the Gal Gai Gar characters from uh, characters from both appear in each other other than it is fucked up fucked up in ways the guys in the 50s uh, or rather the 50 shades of gray is shown to be some weird white boy and nothing more as in eating things growing out of the heads of the infected is how the hero transforms into into better what the fuck okay that's how the hero transforms into better man and that's the least weird thing about uh, that particular anime, which is a vague, which in a vague and weird way is t- uh, tied to the Transformers. I'm going to get a sip off of my Coke here. All right, so... In terms of villains, they're a shadow mirror. Basically, if the mirror universe of Star Trek tried to literally invade with undercover agents going ahead to get in position is what that was all about. That actually sounds kind of interesting, Prime. Shadow mirror? Basically, it's... Okay, all right. Uh, Prime, I'm not promising anything here, but I may want to look into... Because that... I'm going to be honest. Again, triple underline this part. Not an anime guy. But that actually sounds sort of interesting, uh, Prime, that I I, I kind of like that. So uh, let's see what else. Uh, and I completely lost my. Sp- ah, here we go. Uh, for the big book, uh, the big book of little criminals, the film noir movie come to reality with something else. Truth really can be stranger than fiction. And Prime, I'm gonna have to agree with you on that. The the thing that I liked about doing all the uh, all of those uh, big book episodes with Chris Honeywell, and I think the last one included Scott Rifen, if I recall correctly. But what I liked about that was the fact that a lot of this stuff is nonfiction. Now, yes, there is a certain sense in which we can kind of classify urban legends as nonfiction because they're real; they're just not true, right? But nevertheless, that that was sort of my big buy-in for, or even conspiracy theories for that matter. I mean, they may or may not be true, but they are nevertheless real from the standpoint that they actually do exist. Some people actually do believe in these things. So whatever. So I thought that doing all of that big book stuff, it was... It was basically going to be something that would set my podcast apart from everybody else out there because I do I do know that there were people out there who would listen to only the my uh, my uh, uh, big book series and then you know getting you know once that was done getting a little bit more uh, beyond that the weird stuff episodes that I used to do with Chris Honeywell 
there were there were listeners who would listen only to that stuff. They didn't really give a damn about Batman movies or X-Men comics or any of that stuff. You know, Smallville. They didn't care about any of that stuff. But they did savvy the sort of alternative views type stuff that... Honestly, I don't know how representative of that... Uh, you know, how representative that stuff ever really was of Trennis Magnus Punch's reality as a podcast. But nevertheless, that was the stuff that... It was a certain type of listener who gravitated towards that and that type of listener by and large they didn't really care very much about you know the other subject matter of, of this podcast so i don't know that was a lot of fun and it's one of those things that i look back on now and i can't help thinking i could do those episodes better but i guess that's just the nature of podcasting you know you when you look when you look at the past you know you you tend to get very analytical well whatever that's not really the point. The point is, thanks a lot. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> carrying on with uh, with uh, Prime's email here, he says, as for the son of Donna Troy thing, it was in a possible future that her son would be a tyrant who would take over the world and only a network of superpowered heroes known as the Team Titans, that's T-E-A-M, Team Titans, was trying to stop him. So they went back in time and intended to kill him before he was born. Donna Troy gave up her powers so her son won't have them, and that seemed to work. However, in Zero Hour, it turned out that they were sleeper agents of Time Trapper so he could use them to fight Extant in a temporal pissing contest. And they never, they never did answer what the Terra of the, team, uh, of the Team Titans was in relation to the original. Seriously, no one ever did, and events after her death at the hands of Black Adam made it even more muddled. I'm going to tell you something here, Prime. Uh, I consider myself not necessarily a zero-hour aficionado, but I do have some amount of affection for that crossover event. And you're kicking some science on me here, man. I mean, I never knew any of that stuff about uh, the team Titans, about Donna Troy, about the time travel stuff, uh, time trap. Well, honestly, the this whole rivalry thing that you're alluding to here between the time trapper and Extant, that actually... I, I I I can't remember if it's the first issue of Zero Hour or the second or what, but it's pretty early on, as I recall, in in Zero Hour that it's at least implied that there's some kind of bad blood between Extant and Time Trapper because Extant, as I recall, he doesn't just kill the Time Trapper. I mean, he kills the fuck out of him. So, or her, or it, or whatever the Time Trapper was ever supposed to be. I don't know. So, anyway... Uh, Prime goes on to say, And for your Nothing But Image series, I left out Spawn merely because I have no real feelings either way on it. Not sure how to, how gracefully the early part of that series has aged, but I do wonder if Angela's origins and such were early in the series run. Given how things had gone uh, with that character. And I'm going to put the email back on pause here. I'm going to put your uh, email back on pause here, Prime, and say that Obviously, I'm going through a series right now that's that's about Image Comics, and I do talk about the uh, first four issues of Spawn. That's actually going to be the next stuff that I talk about in in this mega series. And reading those issues uh, for this for this mega series, obviously, you're gonna, or at least I, I can't speak to anybody else, I suppose, but I at least 
it's not going to end there. You know, uh, I read a lot more Wildcats than the Wildcats issues that I talked about. I read a lot more Spawn issues than the Spawn issues that I will talk about. And as to Savage Dragon, I mean, I honestly don't know if I'm ever going to revisit the, that title on this epi- uh, on this podcast. I mean, I tend to doubt it. But I suppose never say never. But my point is, the my memory of goings-on with Spawn, I want to say that... Uh, Prime, correct me if I'm wrong, but... I think Angela's origins, they get dealt with in that Angela miniseries. And I swear to think that the Angela miniseries, it basically... It was released, I want to say, alongside... Like somewhere in the mid to late 20s, like issue 20s of Spawn. So sometime between Spawn number 26, maybe, and 29... That sounds right. Honestly, it's kind of hard to remember. But I swear to think that Angela, that three-issue Angela miniseries, that is where we we, we get a, a little bit more into the blood and guts of Angela's history, her backstory, her origins, all that fun stuff. And so, no, I, I mean... I guess in a completely relative sense, yes, that is early on in Spawn's run in as much as Spawn just hit issue number 300 or something like that. So, yeah, it, that, I guess that's fairly, you know, relatively early on. But it's in terms of, you know, the era of Spawn when I was following that title, the... I mean, is that really early? I, I don't know. It, it's all relative. But point is, uh, I want to say it's in the... The Angela miniseries is what contains her origin, and that was released, I swear to think, somewhere in like the mid to late 20, uh, issue number 20s of Spawn. So if you want to call that early on in in Spawn's run, well, I'm not here to tell you that you're right or that you're wrong. So anyway, <sighs> boy, oh boy. So anyway, getting right, uh, getting right back into a, a Prime's email, he says... For Youngblood, I have to ask the same question I've asked on Facebook, and if you will ever cover Team Youngblood as well. From what I've gathered, that book became the flagship Young Youngblood title, and Youngblood becomes a secondary title to it. And Prime, I'm putting your email back on pause here to say that that's kind of the way that I remember things going, too. It's, honestly, it's been a really long time since I've, uh, since I've gotten into, the, like, the blood and guts of all that extreme stuff you know it's uh it's been a pretty long time but that's the way that i remember things going as uh, as well that team youngblood eventually became the the centerpiece of extreme studios or maximum or or, or awesome or, or whatever whatever it was called basically rob liefeld and uh now am i ever going to talk about any of that stuff and prime I'm going to go out on a limb and say very probably yes. I don't know when, but I definitely do want to talk about some kind of um, young young blood for sure. Like I would say probably the first two volumes. Uh, I'm not promising that, but that's definitely kind of uh, a, an agenda item for me. And the way it goes in my memory, and again, Prime, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way it goes in my memory is there, there was Youngblood Volume 1, 
Then there was Youngblood Volume 2. And then after that, it was it was pretty much, it was all Team Youngblood. I reserve the right to be wrong, but that's the way that I remember things going. And so all in all, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely want to get into a, a lot of that Youngblood stuff. Um, and I don't know when, but that is definitely going to be a priority. And honestly, I mean, my life has gotten a little bit topsy-turvy lately, and it's only going to get worse in the months to come, maybe even in the years to come. So I honestly don't know when I'm going to have a chance to do that. But I, I do promise you that, yes, I I will be getting into some amount of Youngblood. And I the ideal, again, is going to be uh, Youngblood Volume 1 and Youngblood Volume 2. And... Honestly, in for a penny, in for a pound, if I'm going to go that far with it, I'm probably going to include some other extreme titles as well. It's just, you know, Rob Liefeld takes a lot of shit, you know, or less so lately, to be honest. I mean, less, I would say he takes less shit from people lately, but there was a time back in the 2000s and the 2010s when the poor guy just couldn't catch a fucking break. I mean, people were like, giving them copies of how to draw comics the Marvel way and stuff like that at cons. It's just fuck you to those people, you know? And anyway, so I, I'm not here to tell you that Liefeld is, you know, my favorite artist of all time, but I do think he is incredibly underrated. And so I I definitely want to give the Youngblood titles uh, some love. So when that's going to happen, like I say, I don't know, but that is that is a priority at some point or another. So anyway, carrying on with Prime's email, he says, And from what I can gather, Liefeld's uh, body of work is best when done by others. Supreme by Alan Moore, Glory by others, and Heard the Prophet series of the last few years was rather good. And Prime, I'm going to have to take your word for most of that. Now, what I will say about Su- uh, Supreme I have read a fair amount of that pre-Alan Moore Supreme, and to me, they're both good. Now, they're good for different reasons, but I would say they're they're both actually pretty good. And obviously, Supreme is a kind of a Superman figure in the extreme universe, and Alan Moore made him, I would say, more of one. He's... This is definitely a Superman pastiche. There's just, like, more explicitly a a Superman pastiche. Whereas before, you kind of figured that this guy is basically hitting at Superman's level. And he's definitely got that same kind of iconic stature in the Extreme Universe. But you weren't necessarily meant to, uh, to view Supreme as a Superman surrogate. Whereas I think Alan Moore made Supreme into a little bit more of an explicit Superman surrogate. So now the pre Alan Moore Supreme, this guy is ridiculously powerful. He's obviously, like I say, kind of, he's at Superman's level in terms of stature and in terms of power. But this is a, this is a version of Superman that he's not Mr. Mr. Nice guy. He's not the squeaky clean boy scout. You know, this guy is a lot more rough around the edges and the reason that I'm okay with that is because this is not actually being done to Superman. This character, he's like a Superman figure, but he is uh, kind of darker. And I would, I, I mean, I would definitely balk at that being done in 
a regular Superman comic book, but a character that's sort of like a Superman archetype in a way. No, that doesn't really bother me at all. I I, I really like, like I say, I enjoy both versions of Supreme, uh, pre-Alan Moore and post-Alan Moore. To me, they're both good. So anyway, so I guess what I'm saying is I somewhat disagree with you on that, Prime. <clears throat> now, Prime goes on to say, as for Gen 13, one thing is for certain. They aren't as powerful as Superman as he survived being at the edge of a nuke going off, and they, well, didn't survive a nuclear blast. That was still in the burn era post-crisis Superman, if you wonder what version that was. And yeah, uh, Prime, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I swear to think, Superman, post-crisis Superman, barely survived a, a nuclear explosion in Superman number nine. It's basically Superman going up against uh, the Joker. Because the Joker is the Joker, he just stopped by Metropolis. And he, of, of course, if you stop by Metropolis, you know, you're a supervillain visiting Metropolis. You're going to tangle with Superman sooner or later. And so basically, I think the Joker thought a nuclear bomb would kill Superman. And it fucked him up. There's no question about it. But he he still survived. Now, it's interesting to me, not that this is not that this has anything to do with your email prime, but it is interesting to me that Burn Age Superman, he survived a nuclear explosion. Now, it fucked him up. He definitely needed some time to recover, and he was he took a shot when he did that. There's just no two ways about it. He took a shot. But he was basically strong enough to finish out the issue and take the Joker down. Whereas in The Dark Knight Returns, Superman gets hit with a nuclear missile and that fucks him up pretty bad. I mean, I think it's implied in the in that issue of, uh, I think it's The Dark Knight Returns number three. I think it's implied that it took Superman like several days or rather several hours and maybe even a few days to heal enough just to leave the scene, you know? And then even after that, getting into the fourth, the fourth issue of The Dark Knight Returns, Superman was still... He was still putting himself back together. I mean, he was still recuperating. You know, he's he's healthy enough to walk around and talk to people. He looks basically normal. But he he did a lot more than than take a shot. I mean, he was he was down and out for quite a while. And I, it always and the reason that always kind of fascinated me is because I always got the impression that Superman and the Dark Knight Returns is just this ridiculously powerful, godlike character, whereas Burn Age Superman is a lot more grounded. He's got a lot more limitations. He's not as powerful, and yet ultra-powerful Superman in The Dark Knight Returns, he, I mean, that really shit in his cornflakes, getting, getting that nuclear, uh, uh, that nuclear missile fired at him. Whereas Burn Age Superman, he was at, you know, he was in that nuclear blast, and yeah, I mean, he, he was hurting, but, you know, he, basically, he was okay again by page 22, you know? So, anyway, it's just interesting. Anyway, so, Prime finishes up his email by saying, 
We'll see in several months how many holes in my uh, talk on Super Robot Wars animes I'd need to fill in. And uh, Prime, you know, obviously it's been, at this point, like, we're closing in on, uh, well, let's see. Five years, okay? Because <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm recording this. Uh, you know, forget about when this episode is coming out. I'm actually recording this in February of 2020. So you sent this email to me on February the 25th, 2015. So yeah, five years. I'd imagine by now you've probably had time to fill in those holes, but I guess I guess we'll see. So just uh, I guess let me know. So, but either way, thanks a lot, Prime. I appreciate you taking the time to write in. This is a pretty intricate, very detailed uh, email, and I must tell you, Prime, that uh, that um, Mirror Universe anime that that you mentioned that actually sounds kind of interesting. So. I uh, may check into that. And just to be clear, yes, I do intend to talk about some extreme uh, comics at some point or another. Again, Youngblood Volume 1, Youngblood Volume 2, and we'll see how things go after that. Uh, after that, I'm really not promising anything, but but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see how things go. And so... Otherwise, I, I think that's that's basically the end of it. So, as for next week, what I'm going to be talking about is Spawn number one, but uh, that's for next week. So, I think that's pretty much it for me for right now. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes, 
just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I release new episodes every Tuesday, and sometimes those episodes are all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in history. Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to themes, story arcs, and character motivations of Smallville. I do a ton of in-depth analysis of each episode of the show, and people seem to love listening to me talk about Smallville. And I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, a feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and see for yourself why Smallville is awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville. A feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Only at twotruefreaks.com. <laughs>